Book Three, Chapter Four of Ben Hur. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Ben Hur, A Tale of the Christ, by Lou Wallace, Book Three, Chapter Four. In the Bay of Antimona, east of Sathira, the island, the hundred galleys assembled. There the tribune gave one day to inspection. He sailed then to Naxos, the largest of the Cyclades, midway the coasts of Greece and Asia, like a great stone planted in the centre of a highway, from which he could challenge everything that passed. At the same time he would be in position to go after the pirates instantly, whether they were in the Aegean or out on the Mediterranean. As the fleet, in order, rode in towards the mountain shores of the island, a galley was descried coming from the north. Arius went to meet it. She proved to be a transport, just from Byzantium, and from her commander he learned the particulars of which he stood in most need. The pirates were from all the farther shores of the Uxine. Even Tanay, at the mouth of the river which was supposed to feed Pelus Maeotius, was represented among them. Their preparations had been with the greatest secrecy. The first known of them was their appearance off the entrance to the Thracian Bosphorus, followed by the destruction of the fleet in station there. Thence to the outlet of the Hellespont everything afloat had fallen their prey. There were quite sixty galleys in the squadron, all well manned and supplied. A few were biremes, the rest stout triremes. A Greek was in command, and the pilots, said to be familiar with all the eastern seas, were Greek. The plunder had been incalculable. The panic, consequently, was not on the sea alone. Cities, with closed gates, sent their people nightly to the walls. Traffic had almost ceased. Where were the pirates now? To this question, of most interest to Arius, he received answer. After sacking Hephaestia, on the island of Lemnos, the enemy had coursed across to the Thessalian group, and by last account appeared in the gulfs between Uboa and Hellas. Such were the tidings. Then the people of the island, drawn to the hilltops by the rare spectacle of a hundred ships careering in united squadron, beheld the advanced division suddenly turn to the north, and the others follow wheeling upon the same point like cavalry in a column. News of the piratical descent had reached them, and now, watching the white sails until they faded from sight up between Rin and Syros, the thoughtful among them took comfort, and were grateful. What Rome seized with strong hand, she always defended. In return for their taxes, she gave them safety. The Tribune was more than pleased with the enemy's movements, he was doubly thankful to fortune. She had brought swift and sure intelligence, and had lured his foes into the waters where, of all others, destruction was most assured. He knew the havoc one galley could play in a broad sea like the Mediterranean, and the difficulty of finding and overhauling her. He knew also how those very circumstances would enhance the service and glory if, at one blow, he could put a finish to the whole piratical array. If the reader will take a map of Greece and the Aegean, he will notice the island of Euboea, lying along the classic coast like a rampart against Asia. 
leaving a channel between it and the continent quite a hundred and twenty miles in length, and scarcely an average of eight in width. The inlet on the north had admitted the fleet of Xerxes, and now it received the bold raiders from the Uxine. The towns along the Pelasgic and Meliac gulfs were rich and their plunder seductive. All things considered, therefore, Arius judged that the robbers might be found somewhere below Thermopylae. Welcoming the chance, he resolved to enclose them north and south, to do which not an hour could be lost. Even the fruits and wines and women of Naxos must be left behind. So he sailed away without stop or tack, until, a little before nightfall, Mount Oka was seen upreared against the sky, and the pilot reported the Euboean coast. At a signal the fleet rested upon its oars. When the movement was resumed, Arius led a division of fifty of the galleys, intending to take them up the channel, while another division, equally strong, turned their prows to the outer or seaward side of the island, with orders to make all haste to the upper inlet, and descend, sweeping the waters. To be sure, neither division was equal in number to the pirates, but each had advantages in compensation, among them, by no means least, a discipline impossible to a lawless horde, however brave. Besides, it was a shrewd count on the tribune's side, if, peradventure, one should be defeated, the other would find the enemy shattered by his victory, and in condition to be easily overwhelmed. Meantime, Ben-Hur kept his bench, relieved every six hours. The rest in the bay of Antimona had freshened him, so that the oar was not troublesome, and the chief on the platform found no fault. People generally are not aware of the ease of mind there is in knowing where they are, and where they are going. The sensation of being lost is a keen distress. Still worse is the feeling one has in driving blindly into unknown places. Custom had dulled the feeling with Ben-Hur, but only measurably. Pulling away, hour after hour, sometimes days and nights together, sensible all the time that the galley was gliding swiftly along some of the many tracks of the broad sea. The longing to know where he was, and whither going, was always present with him. But now it seemed quickened by the hope which had come to new life in his breast since the interview with the tribune. The narrower the abiding place happens to be, the more intense is the longing, and so he found. He seemed to hear every sound of the ship in labour, and listened to each one as if it were a voice come to tell him something. He looked to the grating overhead, and through it, into the light of which so small a portion was his, expecting, he knew not what, and many times he caught himself on the point of yielding to the impulse to speak to the chief on the platform, than which no circumstance of battle would have astonished that dignitary more. In his long service, by watching the shifting of the meagre sunbeams upon the cabin floor when the ship was under way, he had come to know, generally, the quarter into which she was sailing. This, of course, was only of clear days like those good fortune was sending the tribune. The experience had not failed him in the period succeeding the departure from Cythera. Thinking they were tending towards the old Judean country, he was sensitive to every variation from the course. With a pang he had observed the sudden change northward, which, as has been noticed, 
took place near Naxos. The cause, however, he could not even conjecture, for it must be remembered that, in common with his fellow-slaves, he knew nothing of the situation, and had no interest in the voyage. His place was at the oar, and he was held there inexorably, whether at anchor or under sail. Once only in three years had he been permitted an outlook from the deck. The occasion we have seen. He had no idea that, following the vessel he was helping drive, there was a great squadron close at hand and in beautiful order. No more did he know the object of which it was in pursuit. When the sun, going down, withdrew his last ray from the cabin, the galley still held northward. Night fell, yet Ben-Hur could discern no change. About that time the smell of incense floated down the gangways from the deck. "'The tribune is at the altar,' he thought. "'Can it be we are going into battle?' He became observant. Now he had been in many battles without having seen one. From his bench he had heard them above and about him, until he was familiar with all their notes, almost as a singer with a song. So, too, he had become acquainted with many of the preliminaries of an engagement, of which, with a Roman as well as a Greek, the most invariable was the sacrifice to the gods. The rites were the same as those performed at the beginning of a voyage, and to him, when noticed, they were always an admonition. A battle, it should be observed, possessed for him and his fellow-slaves of the oar an interest unlike that of the sailor and marine. It came, not of the danger encountered, but of the fact that defeat, if survived, might bring an alteration of condition, possibly freedom, at least a change of masters, which might be for the better. In good time, the lanterns were lighted and hung by the stairs, and the tribune came down from the deck. At his word the marines put on their armour. At his word again the machines were looked to, and spears, javelins, and arrows, in great sheaves, brought and laid upon the floor, together with jars of inflammable oil, and baskets of cotton-balls wound loose like the wicking of candles. And when, finally, Ben-Hur saw the tribune mount his platform and don his armour, and get his helmet and shield out, the meaning of the preparations might not be any longer doubted, and he made ready for the last ignominy of his service. To every bench, as a fixture, there was a chain with heavy anklets. These the hortator proceeded to lock upon the oarsmen, going from number to number, leaving no choice but to obey, and, in event of disaster, no possibility of escape. In the cabin, then, a silence fell, broken at first only by the soft of the oars turning in the leathern cases. Every man upon the benches felt the shame, Ben-Hur more keenly than his companions. He would have put it away at any price. Soon the clanking of the fetters notified him of the progress the chief was making in his round. He would come to him in turn, but would not the tribune interpose for him? The thought may be set down to vanity or selfishness, as the reader pleases. It certainly at that moment took possession of Ben-Hur. He believed the Roman would interpose. Anyhow, the circumstance would test the man's feelings. If, intent upon the battle, he would but think of him, it would be proof of his opinion formed, proof that he had been tacitly promoted above his associates in misery, 
such proof as would justify hope. Ben-Hur waited anxiously. The interval seemed like an age. At every turn of the oar he looked towards the tribune, who, his simple preparations made, lay down upon the couch and composed himself to rest, whereupon number sixty chid himself, and laughed grimly, and resolved not to look that way again. The hortator approached. Now he was at number one. The rattle of the iron links sounded horribly. At last, number sixty. Calm from despair, Ben-Hur held his oar at poise, and gave his foot to the officer. Then the tribune stirred, sat up, beckoned to the chief. A strong revulsion seized the Jew. From the hortator the great man glanced at him, and when he dropped his oar all the section of the ship on his side seemed aglow. He heard nothing of what was said, enough that the chain hung idly from its staple in the bench, and that the chief, going to his seat, began to beat the sounding-board. The notes of the gavel were never so like music. With his breast against the leaded handle, he pushed with all his might, pushed until the shaft bent as if about to break. The chief went to the tribune, and, smiling, pointed to number sixty. "'What strength!' he said. "'And what spirit!' the tribune answered. "'Purpol! He is better without the irons. Put them on him no more.' So saying, he stretched himself upon the couch again. The ship sailed on hour after hour under the oars in water scarcely rippled by the wind, and the people not on duty slept, Arius in his place, the marines on the floor. Once, twice, Ben-Hur was relieved, but he could not sleep. Three years of night, and through the darkness a sunbeam at last— at sea adrift and lost, and now land. Dead so long, and lo, the thrill and stir of resurrection. Sleep was not for such an hour. Hope deals with the future. Now and the past are but servants that wait on her with impulse and suggestive circumstance. Starting from the favour of the tribune, she carried him forward indefinitely. The wonder is, not that things so purely imaginative as the results she points us to can make us so happy, but that we can receive them as so real. They must be as gorgeous poppies under the influence of which, under the crimson and purple and gold, reason lies down the while, and is not. Sorrows assuaged, home and the fortunes of his house restored, mother and sister in his arms once more. Such were the central ideas which made him happier that moment than he had ever been. That he was rushing, as on wings, into horrible battle, had, for the time, nothing to do with his thoughts. The things thus in hope were unmixed with doubts. They were. Hence his joy so full, so perfect, there was no room in his heart for revenge. Masala, Gratis, Rome, and all the bitter, passionate memories connected with them, were as dead plagues, miasmas of the earth above which he floated, far and safe, listening to singing stars. The deeper darkness before the dawn was upon the waters, and all things going well with the Astroia, when a man, descending from the deck, walked swiftly to the platform where the tribune slept, and awoke him. Arius arose, 
put on his helmet, sword, and shield, and went to the commander of the marines. "'The pirates are close by, up and ready,' he said, and passed to the stairs, calm, confident, insomuch that one might have thought, "'Happy fellow! Apicius has set a feast for him.'" End of chapter.